the American Christian tradition has become exclusionary. It is us versus them. It is the good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians against those wicked, pagan, secular, progressive Democrats who want to destroy our way of life. And when you lock yourself into that sort of a binary, that does not advance the kingdom of heaven. It just doesn't. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Tim Alberta, an award-winning journalist, author, and staff writer for The Atlantic. His new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, is a personal examination of the evangelical movement and how it has turned America itself into an object of idolatry. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. You write early in the book that you are motivated today by a righteous anger. Can you talk about what sparked that, the incident in particular, at your father's funeral? Sure. So I I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. And when I say I grew up in the church, you know, I like literally physically grew up in the church. My mom was on the staff there. Uh, I spent pretty much every day of the week uh, at the church, and it was really my home. It was my community, and and I'm really grateful for that community because there are a lot of amazing people, and a lot of what made me who I am came from that church family, from that church community. But you know, as I was getting older, I think there were there were just more things that not just in my specific church, but kind of in the collective capital C church that were just that were just making me uncomfortable and just, you know, it felt like uh, there was this creeping obsession, sort of zealotry around politics and, uh, and that, the, that the core mission of the church and the witness to the outside world was sort of being diminished in the process. And that had, that had been on my mind for a number of years, really throughout much of my adulthood. And, but it was kind of on the back burner because I've got a job and I've got kids and a wife and, you know, like life goes on. Well, suddenly my dad dies in 2019. And when I went back to Michigan for the funeral, I, it never occurred to me that my professional work, that my journalism career, and in particular, my criticisms of Donald Trump would be uh, relevant to burying my dad at the church where he'd served for you know, a quarter century and where I'd grown up and was kind of home to me and my family. But I was mistaken. I had some folks who who just wanted to let me have it right then and there. And even beyond that, not just folks who wanted to kind of argue politics, argue Trump, but who, you know, like wanted to question my faith because of it, right? Like how, you know, I thought, you know, are you, are you playing for the right team? Like I, I thought that thought that you were one of us, that kind of thing. Maybe I was naive. I probably was. Um, maybe I was just ignorant to some of the the cruelty and the callousness that existed in the church that many on the outside would say, hey, see, we told you these people were terrible. Now, of course, you know, these people are not terrible. I mean, this is, you know, I've tried to say like a few times, like, you know, that I'm talking about a handful of these ugly confrontations uh, at a funeral when I'm, you know, seeing hundreds of people, right? So it's a small number of them, but it was, it was a really eye-opening experience, and it was really, uh, of course, a, a, an upsetting and shocking experience that just kind of 
I think pushed me to open my eyes a little bit more to see the scale of this inside of the church and and really maybe question what might be done about it. And there was that one letter in particular delivered to you in an envelope written by a close friend of of your dad's, a friend of the family's that wasn't a condolence. It was it was calling you out. I'm just trying to imagine the mindset someone has to be in to write something like that. You and me both, man. Yeah. The thing about the letter, too, was that we had just... So all of those confrontations had actually happened the day before at the visitation, at the at the viewing for, for my dad. So then the next day was the funeral, and I gave a eulogy that was... I kind of returned fire, more or less, and, and kind of brought up some of the stuff from the day before and just, you know... Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. But but it was obviously I was pretty bothered by it and just kind of said, like, hey, what are we doing here? Like, what's 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 the purpose of the church? And are we are we living up to it? And and how are we being discipled? Are we being discipled by scripture? Or are we being discipled by, you know, talk radio and, and cable news? So I kind of spoke my piece there. And then we went to the cemetery and we buried my dad. And right when we got back to my parents' house, that's when someone handed me that letter and it never, despite all of that, Ken, the funny thing is like, I can still visualize that moment. Despite all of that ugliness of the preceding 24 hours or so, it still did not cross my mind when this, uh, my mom's friend, this nice lady who was over helping make lunch for us, she handed me this note and said, Hey, somebody left this for you at the church. And of course, I just thought it was a condolence card. It never crossed my mind. So then I open it and it's, yeah, it's, you know, a family friend, guy I've known since I was a kid, one of my dad's good buddies, just, you know, full conspiracy land stuff. Just, you know, you know, you're so disappointed to see that you're a part of the deep state and that you're working to undermine, uh, undermine God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump. And, and then says that, like, I can be restored if I'll just use my journalism skills to expose the deep state that God will still forgive me. Just like, just and it's, you know, it, it's again, you're also, anybody who's lost a loved one unexpectedly, you're kind of in this fog of like processing and how, like, you know, so to be in that fog and to be experiencing all of that, it felt, it felt pretty surreal. And I'm still four and a half years later, kind of trying to make sense of it, I guess. Your book has been crushing it on the bestseller list. The reviews are fantastic. But as part of my prep, I read the one-star reviews. I hope you don't. But (laughs) what struck me about so many of them is that they're reminiscent of that letter you received. They're not addressing anything substantive. They're ad hominem. They're venomous. And I'm wondering if if that's just a characteristic of the hyper-emotionalism that characterizes so much of the evangelical church today. In ways that's incredibly positive, it leads to acts of unbelievable charity and service. But the dark side is when that hyper-emotionalism is targeted towards a grieving son. Yeah, boy, that is a really interesting question. And it's a point that I've thought about a little bit, and I need to think about it more, because something that I've 
struggled with. Like this is a, a, a conversation I've had with my own pastor at times. I tend to be a very cerebral, intellectual Christian. I am not prone to displays of like performative supernaturalism. It's just, it's not the tradition I was raised in. And it's just not, it doesn't come, it doesn't come naturally to me. For those who it does come naturally to, that's great. Uh, I'm not criticizing you. It's just not kind of who I am as a believer. But it's interesting because I've been in some church settings where the pastor was really um, dabbling or more than dabbling in, in some of the kind of radical rhetoric and flirting with a lot of conspiratorial stuff. And, and you know, in those churches, that's, you know, I'm seeing people like throwing themselves down on the ground during the worship. And I am wondering, yeah, like, is that, does, does some of that, as you, as you put it, that word hyper-emotionalism, does that make one more prone to then kind of crossing over into the darker side of, of, you know, violent conspiratorial politics. I don't know. I, I, it's, I, I'm not pretending to know. I'm not hinting. I'm not winking and nodding at you and saying the answer is yes. I, but it is something I've thought a little bit about the, because the interesting thing is, I mean, I have not read the one star reviews. Uh, maybe I should It'd probably be fun, but I, I'm not surprised to hear that from you because I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Ken, like I've been, I've gotten plenty of hate mail. I see some of the, the, you know, the angry tweets uh, from folks who don't like what I've had to say. But what the, one of the things I've noticed as a through line in all of that, I've never seen a critique of the theology ever, you know, now, now, and that's not to say that I've gotten all the theology right, by the way, like I, I'm one of the, my friend, John Ward said something to me that really sticks with me. He said, one of the lessons he's learned over the years is to be really humble about his, his own theology. And I agree with that. But I think some of like the the core theology that I'm setting forth throughout the book, which is all about identity being rooted in Christ and about our kingdom being not of this world and about just some of the like basic blocking and tackling of Christianity as it intersects with our American identity. I've never, none of the hate mail, none of the angry stuff, none of it has addressed that. It's addressed, you know, me personally, my sort of tone, my being holier than that, whatever, like any of that stuff, fine. But like, I think that's pretty, that's been revealing to me because I don't read scripture at that intersection that I'm describing. I don't read scripture and sense a whole lot of ambiguity. It seems pretty straightforward who we are called to be and what we are called to, what we are called to be as Christians. And yet I'm still dealing with a lot of this anger and this vitriol, which makes me wonder if people aren't disagreeing with the theology, but maybe they've just they're 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 choosing to apply it in a way that they feel is more conducive to their own aims. I don't know. It's a it's a strange thing. I'm going to read you one of these one star reviews. Oh, good to make the point that the contest really isn't over theology. And I would love you to talk about, well, react to the review and then talk about your experience at Floodgate Church, I think it was, where the ratio of American flags and jingoistic fervor to crosses and a theological message was like infinity to one. But here's what uh, someone who didn't actually read your book had to say about it. 
any regime not under God is true tyranny. Tim, your whole point of view is skewed by the Atlantic and other left-wing BS. Do you want a larger admin state sitting on MSNBC? They want a large admin state. They are not Christians. I mean, I think that captures a lot of the angst that your critics harbor towards your I think, very sound theological presentation. They don't have a counter to that. It's all about, it's all about the, the policy difference. Yeah, and the policy difference being what exactly? Like admin, <laughs> this idea, like the administrative state, like what are we talking about here? I mean, uh, for a second, I would even take off the theology cap and put on the political cap. Like, do you know which party has done more to grow government in the last 20 years? <laughs> like, it's it's not, like, it's not even, it's just factual. So MSNBC wants big government. They hate God. Okay, whatever. Like, put the theology cap back on for a second. You know what's really interesting to me, Ken? So I'll get notes like that all the time from people who are like, oh, some good Christian who's on CNN or on MSNBC hanging around these people who hate God, uh, you know, who hate Christianity, right? Okay. Well, two things. Number one, I'm pretty sure if Jesus was here today, do we think that he would just spend time around the, you know, evangelical televangelists who moonlight on Fox News as political commentators? Or do we think that he'd hang around the MSNBC set with the people who don't go to church and who don't know God? And do we think that he, those would be his people because he'd, he'd want to spend more time with them and he'd want to be in fellowship with them? I, I think I know the answer to that one. Number two, I have spent the last three months promoting this book in deeply secular spaces with decidedly secular people. And every conversation, I have taken the opportunity to turn the dialogue towards Jesus. And do you know what the response has been? Total, genuine curiosity. I mean, warmth, engagement, interest— more questions from them, follow-ups. Uh-huh, tell, I didn't know about that. Tell me more. Like, it's really funny that when you strip away all this extracurricular stuff that we've tried to, that we've attached to the gospel, right? All of our own American tribal stuff. When you start stripping it away and just talk to people about Christ, it's amazing to see how they respond to it. So this person who leaves the one-star review is mad because I'm on MSNBC. Like, are we or are we not called to take the gospel to all the nations? Are we or are we not called to love our neighbor? And, you know, my sense of loving your neighbor is what better way to love your neighbor than to treat them like Christ would and to talk to them in a way that Christ would. So it's just, it's amazing. Well, it's not amazing because I'm not amazed by any of it anymore, but it is just, um, it would be funny if it were not so tragic, just seeing the ways in which folks have set aside the gospel because they're more worried about the administrative state or they're more worried about the next election. It's just, it's, it's just, it's sad. Do leaders in today's evangelical church see that contradiction, the idea that they're calling 
if you just go to the root word, I think it's a Greek root of evangelical to bring the good news is to bring more people to the gospel. But because of their rhetoric and their puritanical bent and, and, and the way they've radicalized their own communities, they're actually alienating those they're, they're supposed to reach. They're working at cross purposes with their charge, with their divine charge. I mean, Ken, this is exactly, this is one of the two or three main points of the book that I return to time and time again. These, a lot of these guys will, uh, in, in one breath, talk about, you know, how the only, how, how there's this uh, crisis of God disappearing from America and church membership is down and fewer and fewer people want to identify with Christianity. And then the next breath, they turn around and they talk and they behave and they carry themselves in ways that those folks on the outside of the church look at and they're like, I want nothing to do with these people, right? Like, you know, they are totally repellent to the secular world. And then they'll turn around and when you question them about that and they'll say, oh, well, you know, those, those people they would give any excuse not to come to church. If, if it wasn't my rhetoric, it would be something else. You know, they're, they're not really, their hearts are hardened. Well, are they? I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like when you look throughout history at some of the people who did so much to advance the kingdom of God, you know, was Saul of Tarsus, did, did, was his heart so hardened that he, you know, rounding up, persecuting overseeing the murder of Christians, was his heart so hardened or did God have a purpose for him? You know, Augustine of Hippo, you know, C.S. the idea that C.S. Lewis would become the great apologist of the 20th century was completely bananas to anyone who knew C.S. Lewis, right? So who are we to assume that God has already predetermined that all these people out there, you know, we don't have any use for them. They're never going to come to know the Lord. It's just, it's the thing that I wrote in the book, Ken, and I think this might not be quite verbatim, but listen, Christianity is exclusive. It is exclusive in the teaching that only by belief in Jesus can one come to know God and can one gain eternal life. That is an exclusive teaching. And it is very, it is very, radical and very polarizing because of its exclusivity, but it is not exclusionary. So it is an exclusive doctrine, but it is not an exclusionary religion. The gospel is for everyone. It is meant to be preached to all the nations, to to all the tribes, to all the ethnicities, to all the tongues. And what drives me crazy is that the American Christian tradition has become exclusionary. It is us versus them. It is the good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians against those wicked, pagan, secular, progressive Democrats who want to destroy our way of life. And when you lock yourself into that sort of a binary and you start to view the world as this zero-sum contest where there's going to be a winner and a loser— That does not advance the kingdom of heaven. It just doesn't.
Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have family, friends, or loved ones that you want to be able to spend as much time as possible with, is so important. February is Heart Health Month in the U.S., and more than half the population would benefit from blood pressure support. Super Beats Heart Shoes are the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist-recommended way to support healthy blood pressure, and they even promote heart-healthy energy without the stimulants. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 40,000 five-star reviews and counting, people are raving about Super Beats Heart Shoes. Super Beats Heart Shoes are absolutely delicious and are much better than any alternative supplement out there. Super Beats is also the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended heart shoe for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Support your heart health with Super Beats Heart Shoes. Get a free month supply of Super Beats Heart Shoes on all bundles and a free full-size bag of turmeric shoes valued at $25 with your order by going to BoatsBeats.com. Get this exclusive offer only at BoatsBeats.com. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive. And it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist chair while undergoing the procedure. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere anytime. Smile Actives offers a safe and affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. 97% of Smile Actives users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average all within 30 days. Simply add Smile Actives Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste. It's been formulated with polyclean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into teeth screws and crannies to get better whitening. Smile Actives makes a teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth. So no change in your routine, no extra time, and no more messy strips, trays, or lights. People will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com boats today to receive a special buy one, get one free offer with auto delivery plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com slash boats terms and conditions apply see site for details as you all probably know i am married with kids and honestly using policy genius to find the right life insurance has never been more important make life insurance part of your financial planning this year start shopping now with policy genius to find the right policy to protect your family getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top companies, and their team of licensed experts is on hand to help talk you through it. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. 
Policy Genius has licensed, award-winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com slash boats or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash boats. So talk about so-called patriotism in that context, because the message coming out of these churches isn't one driven by theology or a message of salvation. It's driven by jingoism and this exclusionary idea that we are special in a prideful way and would love your your recollection of the floodgate church and those American flags. Yeah, I think I quote George Orwell in the book, and he says the, the difference between patriotism and nationalism is that patriotism is inherently defensive, that you are, you know, guarding your, your, your country, you're guarding something, but whereas nationalism is inherently offensive and kind of belligerent and violent in nature, that you're taking something. I mentioned that distinction because, number one, I think it's an interesting, useful definition. Also, because to me, patriotism is a healthy thing that is built on a, a love and a pride and an appreciation for something. Whereas much of this jingoism, this nationalism that we're seeing on the march inside of the church, it's not rooted in love. It's rooted in anger. And it's rooted in grievance and it's rooted in resentment and a feeling of being suddenly displaced and and needing to take something back rather than to kind of protect something, preserve something, whatever. I've been in these churches like Floodgate uh, in my hometown in Brighton, Michigan, where yeah, you, you don't see, you walk into the sanctuary and you're looking around. Like I describe it uh, the first time I visited the church, I'm looking around and there's not a cross in the sanctuary, but there are flags everywhere. There's flags up front. There's flags on people's shirts. There's a lady wearing a, the one lady in the room, because this was during COVID times, who was wearing a mask, was wearing an American flag mask. And you kind of look around and you would think if you were an alien from outer space who just landed here and who wandered into this building and they told you that it was a house of worship and, and, and you could kind of contextualize what that meant, what would you think that they were worshiping, right? I struggle with this because I have friends and family who have served and who continue to serve in uniform. I have great appreciation and great love for this country, and I'm so glad to have been born an American. But when you spend time with Christians from other countries— or when you spend time with American Christians who do significant missionary work overseas, they all just kind of cock their head to the side and look at us here like, you got, well, like, you guys are on a whole different program. Like, even, even the idea of modifying Christianity with American Christianity is almost like a, 
it's almost like a contradiction in terms. Like there is no, there's not supposed to be any such thing as an American Christianity or a German Christianity or a, you know, a, a Japanese Christian. There is the body of Christ in which there is no Jew or Gentile, no man or woman, no slave or free, but that we are one in that body of Christ. And that was such a, I mean, think about, sorry, I'm going to preach for just a second, Ken, but like, think about the radical nature of the first century church growing out of the Jewish tradition for hundreds of years, all these Jews who practiced these strict Mosaic laws and they worshiped on Saturday was the Sabbath and they didn't eat pork and they didn't consort with their neighbors who were of other ethnic tribes because those were the enemy. And suddenly overnight, these people are worshiping on Sundays. And suddenly overnight, these people are eating pork and they don't care about a lot of these old rules around cleanliness and everything else. Suddenly, they are embracing those ethnic enemies and calling them brothers and worshiping with them together. So what changed, right? Either you believe that this was, I mean, talk about conspiracies. Like either this was the most intricate, elaborate, well-executed conspiracy of all time, or these people really did see a risen Christ and it completely transformed their life. And part of that transformation was setting aside these peripheral identities that once were so important, but suddenly they were not important anymore because their identity was found in Jesus Christ. And that is what's so frustrating about what's happening in America today. When you walk into a church like that and you look around and you just think, well, if somebody from Africa, some refugee walked into this church, would they feel welcome? Because are we worship, are we worshiping Christ or are we worshiping an American ideal of Christ? Yeah. You describe that conflict this way in the book. And for someone who grew up reading and studying the Bible in Sunday school, this really spoke to me. And it's just beautiful writing. Instead of seeing ourselves as exiles in a metaphorical Babylon, the way Peter describes the first century Christians living in Rome, we have embraced our imperial citizenship. Can you explain that? Yeah. It's interesting that we in this moment in American life will constantly hear from, you know, from, from evangelicals, people I know, people I love, well, look, they're coming for us. You know, Christianity is under attack in this country. Desperate times call for desperate measures. If we don't fight back now, we're going to lose this country and we're going to be persecuted and all the rest, right? And one of the things that's so ironic about that is that the Christian church was quite literally born out of and built on a foundation of persecution. And, you know, real persecution, not being shadow banned on social media, like, like actual heads being lopped off, right? So you think about the first century church taking root in the ancient world, and Peter, who was Jesus's right-hand disciple, who on the night of his arrest took out his sword and, and lopped off the ear of the high priest in the arresting party, and of course, Jesus rebukes him and heals the man's ear and tells Peter, you know, those who die by, live by the sword will die by the sword. And then this same guy, Peter, whose response to Jesus being arrested was violence, 
once Jesus is crucified and resurrected, the light bulb goes off and Peter's like, oh, oh, the proper response, the proper Christian perspective is not the sword, but it is the cross. It is not anger and hatred and violence. It is love. And so here is Peter, who's being led to his own death, uh, about to be martyred for following Jesus and for preaching his gospel. Here's Peter in Rome, which he calls Babylon, because Babylon was, of course, the great metaphor for sort of being taken away from the kingdom of God, being estranged from the kingdom of God. So here he is living under this brutal occupation in first century Rome and being tormented and and tortured and persecuted and soon to be killed. And what is Peter writing to fellow believers all around the world? He's telling them that they must respond to this persecution with love, that their suffering is not only bringing them closer to Jesus, but that their suffering is presenting an opportunity for them to witness to the people who are persecuting them and to show them the grace and the mercy and the redemptive love of Jesus. So it's so interesting to contrast that, those set of circumstances, living under real brutal oppression, with our circumstances here, living in the great superpower of the world. And we have convinced ourselves that because of court rulings or because of what they're teaching kids in schools or because of some election result, that we are in the barrel and that we have to fight back and that if we are going to preserve Christianity in America, well, then maybe we first need to set aside Christian virtues so that we can win this fight, right? Because the ends are going to justify the means ultimately. And, you know, the damage done there is, I just, it's incalculable because that thing that we are telling ourselves we have to do, it is completely at odds with our mandate in scripture. And if anybody from the outside who doesn't know God, but who's a little bit curious and who wants to know more about this Jesus figure, if they're watching us, are they seeing him? My sense is that no, they're not seeing him. And we are not practicing him because let's face it, Ken, um, that line about our imperial citizenship, if you think about scripture, it is written almost entirely from the perspective, from the vantage point of the underdog, right? The Hebrew slaves in Egypt and the exiles to Babylon and the first century Christians living under Roman occupation. I mean, these guys had it pretty rough. They didn't have many of our comforts. And here we are, we think that we're the first century Christians, but we're actually the Romans, right? Like we are the ones who hold all the cards, who hold all the power. And I think that makes it incredibly difficult for us to relate to this vagrant preacher from the ghettos of Nazareth who sacrificed everything and who rejected all the power of the world, who told Satan in the wilderness that only the Lord shall you serve. And I think you know, and who and then who told his disciples that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I mean, how how often in the American context are we telling ourselves that the first shall be last, the last shall be first, right? It's 
It's just, I think in many ways, it's antithetical to how we are wired as Americans. Is there a theological rationale for that inversion, for taking the the humility of the New Testament and the Beatitudes and reverting to a militant form of Christianity? I mean, I've, I've asked everyone who I thought might be able to illuminate this, and I've just been unsatisfied. We've talked to Kristen Dumay, phenomenal book, Jesus and John Wayne, Frank Schaefer, Angela Danker, and I'm not sure there is a theological rationale, except maybe a reversion to the Old Testament. You talk about Mike Pence closing his stump speech with the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Is that part of it? What's the justification? Okay, I'll answer it this way, and maybe this will help, maybe it won't, but this, but, but I, I think that this is sort of my unified theory at this point. I think the rationale comes from the marriage of bad theology, which flows from bad history. So I'll, I'll unpack that. If you believe, as like David Barton you know, and his, his ilk, these folks who preach that really we are not just a nation born out of the ideals, uh, that we are not just a nation informed by the ideals of Judeo-Christian teaching, but that we are actually explicitly born to be a Christian nation, that the framers maybe didn't write it exactly that way, but that really the framers were winking and nodding at us and, and giving us the Bible as our as our or holding up the Bible as a as a governing handbook and and then and and basically giving us the opportunity to build a society and build a government all around biblical dicta, right? If the, if you believe that, and there are a lot of people, Ken, who do. I mean, I think it's a larger number than we are comfortable acknowledging. If you believe that this is a covenant nation that we are doing God's bidding here on earth as Americans and that we have to fight for America as if salvation itself is hanging in the balance and that that we as a nation state, that we were designed to carry out God's will on earth and that there is a salvation component in our role as Americans. Well, then I think once, if you believe that, then then I think it makes distorting the theology really easy, right? Because you're not just fighting for a country, you're fighting for a covenant. You believe that whatever is necessary to preserve God's role in American life, whether that's putting the Ten Commandments in classrooms or putting Bible verses on the scope of a sniper rifle or anything in between, like you think that whatever is necessary to do that is then religiously justified. Um, and I think so. And that's why I spend some time on David Barton in the book, because I, I do I really do think and, and this gets into the conversation about Christian nationalism, obviously. I really do think that the link here is the bad history with the bad theology and, and one feeds into the other. They are codependent in ways that I don't think we necessarily appreciate. Well, that's a partial explanation, but it is entirely abiblical. And you don't address this in the book, but when I look at how Mormonism 
has incorporated patriotism. It doesn't have the same militaristic, militant streak. I mean, you look at the ratio of flags to crosses in a Mormon church and and you see something similar, but it doesn't have that air of menace. And I'm wondering where the militarism of the modern evangelical church comes from. Yeah, that one I don't have an answer for because, listen, I've wrestled with it myself. You know, when you uh, and I've described, obviously, throughout the book in different scenes where you're in churches with people who have firearms on their sides and who are wearing Second Amendment slogan shirts, you know, come and get it, that sort of thing. Right. And you're just looking around thinking, do we or do we not worship a prince of peace? And listen, I, people have a right to self-defense. Nations have a right to self-defense. I'm not questioning that, but you do reach a point where you wonder, like, it's funny. I quote this at one point where Jesus, when he's in the, uh, when he's being taken to the Jewish courts to be tried and he sort of smirks at his captors and he mocks them and says, like, you're brandishing clubs and weapons, like I'm leading some rebellion. And, you know, like you can, like, what does Jesus mean by that? Like, he's spent three years with these Jews who have been waiting for a Messiah who they think is going to be a military strongman, who's going to be a conqueror, who's going to slay all the Romans and restore their kingdom in Jerusalem. That is their idea of a Messiah. And along comes this vagrant, part-time carpenter, part-time rabbi with no formal training who's going around telling them that his kingdom is actually not of this world, that they don't need to worry about killing the Romans, that that's not the program. And I guess the, the reason I'm saying all that, Ken, is because the same way that many of those Jews looked at Jesus back then when they heard him say that and they were like, huh, you're not here to kill the Romans. Well, then what are you here to do? I actually think that that is still the same way that a lot of Christians look at Jesus today. Maybe they don't want to admit it, they, you know, they read the same book and they sing the same hymns and we and they tell themselves that they're on the same page. But when it comes down to it, really, when Jesus says, you know, to lose your life, uh, to gain your life, you must first lose it. And when he says that his kingdom is not of this world and when he calls on you to turn the other cheek and to pray for your enemies and to, and to, and to, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. I mean, those are not ambiguous commands, right? It's pretty straightforward. And I think a lot of us, we we hear it and we're like, really? Are you sure? Like, that doesn't sound very strong. And maybe that's the point, is that we don't have to be strong, that our weakness is made perfect in his strength. That's supposed to be the point, but I think we've lost the plot a little bit. Well, I'm not a theologian, but it sounds to me like there is no theological argument for people packing heat in a church and saying that's a Christly act. I mean, it can be justified in other ways, perhaps, but recasting Jesus from a a humble prophet to a warrior Christ, I just think is a a perversion of, of the Bible and doesn't come from theology. It comes from the culture. It comes from something else. And that's where I think we find our answer. It's 
racism, it's fear of change, it's that persecution complex, but it's not theology. Listen, agree completely. I mean, you can find the justification, you know, and, and, and look, we are without question in a weird time right now in this country, and, and we're probably heading into even weirder times. I mean, people will ask me whenever we have one of these conversations, well, what are these folks so afraid of? And I'll say, well, listen, if you're a white Protestant born in the 1950s, you look around now and the country is unrecognizable to you, right? I mean, there's no, like, I, I don't deny that. And do I think that there has been sort of a, a, a cultural attack on Christianity? Sure. I'm not saying that, like, I necessarily think it's a good thing. I'm not, like, I'm not, like, rejoicing in it. I'm not being some masochist. But I'm also just trying to be grounded in history and in theology to say that, like, so what? This is what we were promised. I mean, literally, Jesus says, like, if you follow me, your life is going to be really hard. Like, like, they are going to hate you. They are going to persecute you. That is the deal. It's like you're entering into a contract here, yet somehow we think that we're special because we're Americans. Like, no, man, that's not how it works. So, yes, the country's changing. Yes, there is a growing hostility towards Christianity, although I would argue, as we kind of alluded to earlier, that much of that hostility is self-inflicted, that, that we have turned the many people against us by the way that we have engaged with, with the world around us. But if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and if you take seriously the command to fear not, and if, and if you believe that he overcame the world so that we might have life everlasting in a kingdom that is not of this world, then you cannot allow that fear and grievance and like, oh, the walls are closing in, they're coming to get us. You cannot allow that to create a permission structure to hate and to wage war and to demonize. It's just, there's no biblical justification for it whatsoever. It's that command to fear not that I think really puts the lie to these churches that celebrate the militancy and that invite people to bring weapons into the church. This whole idea that God needs defending like that, I mean, if it weren't so terrifying, I would find laughable. When Donald Trump says that Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to hurt God, I mean, what what kind of God are, are they imagining that uh, that is that fragile? Yeah. How small is your theology, right? To, to say, like, and this is where I fear that we may be through the looking glass a little bit because I remember when Trump said that in in the 2020 election, I remember tweeting about it and looking around, waiting for people to say, okay, all right, hold on a second. Like, you know, I've supported this guy and I might even vote for him again, but like, this is nutty. Like he's getting, Joe Biden's going to hurt God, really? So I don't get it. Is he is he a senile old fool or is he so powerful that he's going to hurt God? Like, which is it, you know? Uh, for one thing, that just doesn't make any sense. But then, you know, you see this video circulating a couple of weeks ago with the narrator basically saying that, like, God needs Trump to protect 
humanity. What is, I think it's, I think the voiceover says at one point that he describes Trump as a shepherd to all of mankind who will <laughs> never leave nor forsake them. And obviously it's, it's blasphemous and it's heresy, but it's also just pathetic. Like what, like who, like, but the amazing thing though, is that Trump's playing this at his rally and you see all these heads nodding, like people are fired up about it, right? Like, and it's just sad. Like how small is your theology that you need the guy from The Apprentice and from Home Alone 2 to protect you? It's just like, it's sad. We haven't talked yet about the eschatological fetish, this idea that Armageddon is upon us and we need to prepare. And there is just such zeal and anticipation uh, and glee around the idea of a violent end to the world. There is. uh, You know, Ken, this is the thing that people didn't appreciate during COVID. and, And I talked about it then. And then obviously wrote a lot more about it in, in this book. But if you have been steeped in this language, this messaging for decades, that the end is coming, that there is going to be one day this, this clash, this cosmic clash between the forces of good and evil in this country, and that you'd better be prepared for it because they're going to come for you. They're going to come for you. They're going to come for your church. They're going to close down your church. You're not going to be able to worship anymore. They're going to try to abolish Christianity from public life. If if you've been marinating in that kind of a message, well, suddenly COVID-19 arrives and your governor comes out and says that, you know, you can't go to church on Sunday. And you think to yourself, well, this is it. They told us, they, they warned us that this day was coming and now the prophecy has been fulfilled, right? And so what do you do about it? Are you going to cower? Are you going to be a collaborator with the regime? Are you going to are you going to uh, deny Christ like Peter did and live in fear? Or are you going to stand up and be a lion? Are you going to stand up and fight and show that you can put faith over fear and that you're going to you're going to fight to protect the church and to protect Christianity and to advance God's kingdom here on earth. Like that was the sort of dumbed down lowest common denominator binary that infected a lot of evangelical thinking in this country. And, um, but again, I think it was predicated on that sort of prophesying of end times theology, which was of course so big in the, in the seventies and the eighties. And, but, but still persisted, uh, you know, well beyond that. And so, there is a, as you said, it's not just like an expectation, but a kind of a gleeful anticipation of like, well, if you want it, come and get it. Like, you know, if uh, you, you'll have to pry me, you'll, you'll have to pull me out of my church uh, over my dead body. And again, it's a, it's a misplaced fear rooted in a lot of bad theology where, yet again, if you were to study not just the teachings of Christ across the Gospels, but even just study the 24-hour period in which Christ is arrested, is tried, and is crucified, and study his responses, study his behaviors, contrast them with the behaviors of those around him, there is a very clear 
blueprint here. I've used the word unambiguous a few times in this conversation, Ken, but it is, I mean, that's, it is unambiguous. Like if, if you are in fact a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have a blueprint for how you are supposed to respond to these things. And even if you believe that the end is near, if you truly believe that this is it, then you should be trying to save as many souls as possible. You should be, you should be, you know, to the extent that you're gleeful, it's that you're going to go home and be with Jesus. It's not grab my AR-15 and let's take out as many of the evil secular Democrats as possible, right? Like that's, again, but so much of this is just warped through the American lens. It becomes hard to, I think, to divorce where the the bad history and the over-realized violent nationalism ends and where the bad theology begins. How do you think American Christians will look back on this period 100 years from now? Equal parts shame and gratitude. Shame that it got to this point. Gratitude that there was an awakening around this point, that more and more people finally realized the depth of the problem and felt mobilized to do something about it. I, you know, Ken, I have some, some people who I really respect who have talked about this as perhaps a 500-year moment for Christianity. And you don't have to be a math major to figure out what happened 500 years ago in Christianity, right? I mean, it's, so, so maybe, maybe it is. I don't know that that's the case, but it does feel like we are living through a pretty important, pretty pivotal time right now. And if it is a 500-year moment for Christianity— or maybe even just kind of a big inflection point in the American Christian story. Like, I think that that is a good thing because this has gone, the problems here have gone unaddressed for a long time. They've been allowed to fester. And what I've noticed in my reporting here over the last few years is that a lot of folks who who kept quiet about it, they saw the problems and they knew that this might not end well, but they just kind of kept their mouth shut. They, they, they didn't want to ruffle feathers. They didn't want to lose relationships. They didn't want to rock the boat. Those people have now gotten off the sidelines and they have now, I think, recognized that there has to be, the only way to beat bad theology is with good theology and that there has to be an effort to reclaim the Christian tradition in this country from what it has become. So my hope is that, you know, 100 years from now, that's my grandkids or maybe even my great grandkids. They will look back on this with at least some gratitude to recognize that there were some people who were willing to do something about this problem that previous generations had just been content to ignore. Well, I certainly hope you're right on that point, Tim. I feel like we could talk for hours. I have so many more questions I want to ask you. So let's do this again soon. Hey, I'd like that. I, I really would. I appreciate the conversation, Ken. Thanks again to Tim for joining me. Make sure to check out his book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Roloffman is our audio engineer. 
Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.